You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast Deer Season Special. These bonus episodes revolve around deer hunting stories and experiences from a host of deer hunters. These whitetail hunting BS sessions will be launched every week during the 2023 hunting season, adding fuel to your fire in the deer woods. Be entertained and hopefully learn something along the way. The title sponsor of the Deer Season Special Series is Vantage Point Archery, home to the toughest machined one-piece broadheads made in the USA. VPA products are built to last, which is why they have a lifetime warranty. And if you're not completely satisfied, you can send it back, which I highly doubt will occur. New to the lineup this year is VPA's Omega Broadhead. It combines the features of a single bevel with strength of a double bevel. This broadhead also comes with lay flat sharpening technology. You heard right, a single bevel broadhead you can lay flat and sharpen without a jig. You can find the Omega and all the other broadheads at vparchery.com. Pennsylvania Woodsman is also brought to you by Radix Hunting, home of the MCOR cell camera, stick and pick camera accessories, and much more. Also brought to you by Vitalize Seed, a one-two planting system designed with diversity and biology in mind, making it the best food plot available. And lastly, by Huntworth Gear, quality hunting clothing at an affordable cost, makers of heat boost technology. This week's guest is Aaron Blasey, the host of the Fall Podcast. We catch up on anything from podcasting, family balance, enjoyment of hunting, all the way into early season bow hunting in Michigan and other states across the country. Aaron really enjoys early season and he talks about some stories about bucks that he's killed early season, how he's gotten on them, how he plans to do so this fall. And if you haven't taken notice, uh, if you follow him on Instagram, Aaron has already put down a great buck October 1st, early part of the season. So it goes without saying that this is the perfect episode to kick you guys off into our bow season here in Pennsylvania. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Aaron and good luck this week. So joining me today on this week's show is none other than the fall podcast, Aaron Blicey. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on, man. I, uh, Looking forward to this. I see you're on vacation and you said you were burning some brownie points maybe, but hey, uh, sometimes you got to do what you got to do, I guess. <laughs> it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, like I'm on, so I'm on vacation and yeah, we're supposed to be having fun and I'm trying to designate as much family time as I possibly can because that's what we're here for. But at the same time, when you, you know, you know, because you've done podcasting longer than I have and you're trying to build something, you're trying to keep your brand good. So it's, it's, it's a hard balance to go through, especially when you're, when you're a father and everything else, it just, ah, it's a tough, it's a juggling act. It is, man. It is. And like, honestly, with the podcast game, consistency is key. So like, you never want to miss a week. So it's like, I've been on times where you know, we might be going on a family vacation. We do it at the same time every year. And I feel like it just comes up on me so fast. And I'm like, oh, crap, like I'm going to be gone for 10 days. That means I got to probably do two podcasts and get them done, edited, get them published and ready to go before I leave because I don't want to have to worry about that stuff when I'm gone. And I owe that to my family. You know what I mean? They they they're gracious and, you know, enough to like know what my passion is and 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 I wouldn't say allow me to do it, but like I need to do, I need to have a good balance, you know, and um, I, when we're on vacation, it's family time and I don't want to have to worry about anything else. So I get it. Yeah. You need support. Like uh, the worst thing that you can possibly have. And I, I, unfortunately I've been in these shoes where um, it gets to be hunting season and you're out, it's the time to go, but you can't get your mind focused on what you're trying to do. And it I, to me, I think it's, 
you know, even though it's hunting, it's relaxing. Like you got to have your mind sharpened in the game, or else you're, you're you're not with it. And I've been there where my mind's on home. I feel guilty, and it just doesn't make for a positive situation in the field or when you get home. So, trying to do the best you can. I mean, family's what's most important to me, and I think you can you can echo that. But so, man, you uh, you just rolled over uh, 300 episodes, man. T- tell me about what that feels like because it's it snap of a finger and time flies by. Yeah, uh, you know, a hundred, I felt like it took forever to get to, like, not that it was ever a goal, but like when you finally, you know, you, you start publishing podcasts and it's like, man, I'm only at like 25 and it's like, I feel like it's taken forever to get here, you know, and, and then you get to 50 and then it's a hundred. It's like, okay, when I hit the hundred mark, it was like, like, I'm like, okay, cool. Like we're good. You know, like you. I feel like that was almost a milestone that like a lot of podcasters try to hit. Cause I mean, you, if you go back and look, there's a ton of podcasts. There's probably a, a small percentage that actually gets to a hundred episodes, you know? And so that was, that was neat. And then, you know, I felt like 100 to 200 was like flew by and then kind of same thing with 200 to 300. But I'll tell you when you start like looking, when you're just out from the 300 mark, you start looking at like, okay, what are we going to do for 300? I feel like that's a pretty big deal. We should do something. And, um, you know, when you hit it like 300, there was a lot of people that reached out to me, listeners and stuff said, congratulations, a lot more than, you know, 100 or 200. And it was like, man, to me, now it's just kind of a number. It's just like an episode. It It was neat, but now it's just like podcasting. I've been doing it. I'm in my sixth year now where it's just like, it's just, part of life now like mm. it's not i won't lie like there were some times where it was just like man it's becoming work now it's just like part of my daily routine like people you know a lot of people that work out that's part of their daily routine like podcasting is is part of life you know it's just i've accepted it i love to do it still it's just you know just another tuesday kind of thing you know so um that's the way i look at it but you know 300 was pretty cool um but uh, I, I, I like it, but I almost like it almost dates us in a way. I don't like that. Like, it's like, man, these guys have been around a long time, you know, and I don't know if I really I, I, I still want to be like the, the cool new group in a way. So uh, I feel like I'm getting dated a little bit. Well, that's a hard balance. And, and, you know, it's it's funny as we as we're speaking today, we're, when we're recording this, uh, my 100th episode just dropped today. So that was a cool yeah. thing. Cool. Thank you. That was a, that was a cool thing to, to go. And I, I was in that same boat too. Like, it seems like there's, uh, I mean, you've been around longer. So I ask you this question, but it seems like more recently in the past two years, I've seen more podcasts popping up than, than ever. And, uh, I, I kind of am in that phase of like, I don't want to get lost in the weeds, but at, at the end of the day, I'm just trying to do true to myself and keep stuff with, within, uh, our region and, you know, just keep it fresh and roll with it and see what happens. You know, it's no agenda and just pure hunting enjoyment and outdoor enjoyment re- revolving around, you know, good values. I think it goes a long way when you're, when you're doing it, what, what's real. I, I've been asking a lot of people this question, uh, that, that, that's a content creator. I've gotten asked so many times, like, how do you come up with all the different episodes, like, don't you run out of stuff to talk about? And I was like, well, <laughs> there's people that have done this way more than I have. So, like, where are you in those shoes? Like, if people ask you, like, w- what comes to your mind, like, where your goals lie within podcasting and, and content, like, whether it's new stuff or just new avenues? I don't know. Like, it's that's a tough one to answer. It's definitely shifted for me over the years. Like, when I first started doing the podcast, I felt like I had to – I had to have the like top tier guests. Like I had to be the guy that was the first of the game with X guests that would make a splash. Now I'm to the point where it's just like, you know, I just want to put content out. Like right now, one of my good friends and I, we are, we uh, have a 3d archery league that we're in at our local sportsman's club. A lot of people probably don't give a crap to hear about it, but like after every round, him and I podcast over a beer, you know, in the parking lot after we shoot the round. We've got a bet going. Um, he's a big Michigan State football fan. I hate Michigan State. I love Michigan. He hates Michigan. So, like, the bet is whoever wins amongst the two of us, um, 
you know, like if I win, he's got to wear a Michigan jersey this November in a sit, and he's got to, you know, start as a Santa Claus suit, and then it's like, well, that's not that big of a deal. Like, you got to wear a Michigan jersey, and you got to post a picture on social about it. So, like, but, like, we're just keeping them, you know, 20 minutes. Like, they drop either the day of or the day after we shoot the round, so people can kind of follow along with that. You know, it, it, like, it's shifted to where it's just, like, I want to do things that I want to learn about and I want to know. Uh, and, and, uh, and content I want to put out there. If people don't like it, eh, I, I I'm good with it. Now I used, like I said, I used to be like, man, I gotta, I gotta stay cool with it. I gotta stay on top and everything. But I feel like I have a good listener base now to where like people just genuinely like our content and like us as people. And they're just going to listen to it because they like hearing about it. Um, so that's kind of how it's transitioned. Don't get me wrong. Like I want to talk to all the hunters out there, but selfishly i you know a couple things that i I try to keep in mind is i want to try to keep it relevant so like we're in august right now what are guys doing in august so i take that approach but i also take approach uh uh, the approach of relevancy but also um the guys that i respect and that i can like get on top of like what they're doing um there's a lot of guys out there that i don't think are true to themselves like you know if you're a bait hunter and you do it the right way and, and it's legal then own that. Like, there's mm. nothing wrong with it. Like, don't, don't, don't go on a podcast and talk about how you're a scrape hunter and that's all you do. But in the back of your mind, like you're a bait hunter too. It's fine. It's okay. Like there's other bait hunters out there that want to learn from you. And, and there's tactics around hunting around bait, like be true to yourself. Um, and, and you know, the crowd that you want to follow you will follow you. So that's kind of the approach I take. I really like that. So relevancy has been a big thing for me because like with, with my show and being amongst all kinds of other shows, there's a lot of great shows like the fall podcast, like nine finger Chronicles and so many others that have great guests on big names and stuff. But I wanted my show to be relatable in my region. And I've been able to have some conversations with people that you've never heard of. And I've been able to have some conversations with people that aren't re- relative to whitetails. Like some of my, the coolest episodes I've done are with state agencies and, you know, spe- specific species and biology or <clears throat> uh, fun ones. I really selfishly enjoy are or bear hunting in Pennsylvania, like stuff like that. So I try to keep it Try to keep it exactly what you just said, relevant, but stuff that I'm interested in. And I think people can relate to. But uh, anywho, sure. um, you know, moving forward, I'm kind of curious. What do you got wrapped up going on this fall? Man, uh, I was just thinking about that actually, because as we sit here today, as we're recording this, it's August second, and, and August 28th, I'm leaving for Nebraska, and. Um, I, and I'm going to be in a tree like, like soon, like fast. And I'm like, Holy cow. Uh, this is coming really fast. There's only one other year that I've hunted this early and it was in Montana. I think it was Mon- no Wyoming. I'm sorry, Wyoming. And I'm filming, I'm not hunting. So I'm filming for my job. I work for latitude outdoors and, uh, you know, that'll be our first trip of the year and it's going to be hot. <laughs> it's going to be bugs are going to be everywhere. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait a velvet hunt, but uh, that's where we're kicking it off. Uh, I'm going to be kicking off filming in, um, in Nebraska. And then once we get back, September is just going to be gearing up for my October 1st opener here in Michigan. And then, uh, you know, the first five days of October, I really hit pretty hard. Um, I, I really try to hone in on a buck that I like to get after in those first five days. Um, seems like it doesn't happen very often for me, but I, I, I really I can lay eyes on them. I can still get a pattern on them. And then, then it kind of takes a little bit of a, little bit of a back burner in a way. I don't really, I try to kind of like stay, you know, if I see a deer that I can go after and get a pattern, I'm gonna, I'll jump in, but I don't really like go volume hunting for then. Um, middle of October, that's when I'll really start, you know, focusing on scrapes, my historical scrapes and everything like that. So Michigan will, uh, will, will take the brunt of the load in October And then October 22nd, I believe it is, I'm filming again down in Indiana uh, with our crew, the Latitude crew, for four or five days. I come back home. I'm going to hit those next days hard coming into November. And then, man, the 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 coolest trip in the in the for me anyway, and the trip that I've been looking forward to my whole life 
is going to happen this year. November 2nd, me and my 10 closest friends that I've grown up with are all going to camp together in Kansas. We're doing a public land hunt for 12 days, all living in one Airbnb, just like taking it back to our roots, you know, to where we, you know, you've hunted together the longest time, you know, growing up, but then families happen and life happens and you might only be able to give a phone call here or there once or twice a week, maybe. But this time, you know, there's going to be no distractions. It's going to be us guys taking it back to deer camp in Kansas on public land. And man, I, I'm getting chills thinking about it, but that is going to be my November hunt and then coming back. And then I'm going to finish the year just in, in, in Michigan here. So I, I'm, I'm geeked. I'm looking forward to it, man. But that's that's my plans for the fall. You can't beat camp camaraderie in any shape and form. Like all the stuff we talk about. I mean, I love, you know, that individual chase of man against beast with a whitetail. I mean, I do it every year. But, man, every year I look forward to one specific trip at camp. And that's with a, a group of guys. We've done a dedicated annual hunt. And, you know, that's the one I have the most fun. And, like, I carry a rifle. And, you know, in that gun hunt that we do, and I don't even have the expectation of me killing anything. I could care less because it's just the group of guys, and you know, somebody else kills it. It's we killed something, not I killed something, and that's that's real right. special to me. You talked about early season and hitting the first five days hard. <clears throat> so I'm kind of curious: is that because you just especially like to hunt early season? Is there something in particular that makes you drivers? Is it like it's it's the opener. I'm anxious to go hunting. Like dive a little bit more into your your thought press thought process behind hitting it hard the first week because I know there's there's a lot of uh, discrepancies among deer hunters and should you hunt hard the first week of season or not. I personally have found some of my best success for whitetails the first two weeks of October just because of the style I hunt and the, the properties I hunt. But talk a little bit more on that. Yeah. So. You know, I, here in Michigan, I've got a couple permission pieces that are very wide open ag specific. Uh, I picked up a new one this year, permission piece, and it's very, very much, uh, I love wide open flat land ag, um, small woodlots, wooded fence rows. But it, those first five days, man, I really think that you can, in my particular, you know, instance, I can, I can keep a pattern on a deer on a deer that I want to go after for the first three to five days. And I don't hunt them in the morning. Now I do have, I do have some specific locations that I can do like a bed hunt in the morning. And, uh, that that's almost so many stars have to align for, for me to do to, to get in there. But if I, but if I can get those morning sits with those stars all aligned, the wind and the pressure that also, I mean, I got 11 other guys that hunt that same farm. Um, and if I can get all those stars on line, I will jump in in the morning and hunt a deer in a bed. I really will. But I try to gear up for those uh, those evening hunts uh, in the ag land where I know I, I've done so much spring scouting, you know, every year that I know where these deer bed. And I do so much glassing. Glassing is my like mo. I like to glass from a distance. And that's what I've been doing literally every night. And I, I'm going to be doing it from here, from August, all the way through September. And I've picked up a good pattern on deer, on bucks, good bucks that I want to get after and where they're bedding. And their beds, in my instance, where I see them, their beds will stay the same until, you know, the pressure starts mounting and, and hunters start hitting the woods. So those first five days, I feel like where I'm at, there's not a lot of hunting pressure um, and the deer will stay true to those, those patterns. And year after year, I mean, one deer that I might be hunting, he, you know, he either I killed him or a neighbor killed him or somebody killed him. Another buck will come into that. Bed. They will come in that area, whether it's a drainage or whether it's, you know, a ditch or something leading into a field, you know, a terrace, anything like that. They just use them habitual. Now, seeing them as one thing, getting on them as another. That's the that's the problem is like I can see him five days in a row. I know going out that I'm going to see him. It's a chess match like, oh, shoot, he came out here tonight. Well, I'm over here and then I got to pivot and move and then he comes out over here, yada, yada. So it's like playing that chess game 
Um, to answer your question a little further, like I, it is very much like uh, excited, like I can't wait to get in the tree, but it's very much also surgical, methodical. Like I know I can get try to get on this deer. I know I can see him, and I've got a five day window. And usually by October fifth, he's basically gonna either get nocturnal or go dark, or he's just gonna kind of start doing his loops. And I'm very much a window hunter. I've, I've tried to i've tried to like get all these historical patterns on these areas these different locations whether it's a rut funnel whether it's a historical scrape or a hub or anything like that and i hunt those on historical data and you know i don't want to push in and and try to like hunt a stand three four times in a year like i'm going to wait for that window and then i'm going to push in i'm going to throw a sit or two at it and you know monitor it from a distance as well i love the glass like i said and that that's how my success in the last five years has went up like immensely since I've started thinking of hunting as like a window deal instead of a volume guy. Now volume guys, they will kill. I've got, mm. I've got buddies that are straight, strictly kill every year because they hit, they have their butt in the seat constantly. Me with my lifestyle, with my family, I can't do that. Um, so I try to like, navigate my hunting with my family and these windows is what I've really honed in on. And it's really helped out a lot. I can relate to that because again, you know, family and stuff, you gotta, you gotta pinpoint your times and stuff, but talking about windows. So I, I have been somebody that has just struggled to dedicate the time I want to in detailing my camera cards. And, you know, this morning uh, we're again, we're on vacation and my son woke up really, really early, woke me up. It was like three o'clock in the morning and I couldn't sleep. I was like, well, I'm going to get up, make some coffee. And I purposely brought a whole bunch of cards from last fall that I haven't had the time to, to go through and dissect. So I started doing that. I was sitting at the computer for like three, four hours this morning and I'm just going through, I'm, I'm taking the data points that I want. And one of my like I'm just going to call this a very narrow patch of woods that I can hunt between like some kind of a suburban area and some ag land. Um, I started going through and there was the past few years, there's been a window in late October, early November. And I truly believe from watching the, the behavior of some of the doe groups, I think that's when a doe comes in estrus in this wood patch. And each year I've seen different bucks and some of the same bucks. And I put, I put two and two together that I have pictures of a buck since I believe he's two years old every single year in that time frame. And a bunch of them were daylight. And last year it was daylight. Now I had already killed my buck. I think it was October the 16th or 17th. So I wasn't hunting at that point and I wasn't paying attention real closely. But as I went back through those cards and I started looking, I'm like, yeah, that is the same buck. I'm all, I'm fairly confident it is. And I'm like, yeah, two, three, four. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to be a nice buck this year. So I'm really trying to maximize my opportunity during that one week window. And I'm, I'm using, I'm using both regular cell, you know, cell cameras and regular trail cameras for that. Um, I, I try not to be in those, those narrow patches, too intrusive pulling cards, just because where I get a lot of those pictures, I would probably bump something. So I've been using cell cameras in those situations. And I, I was going to kind of relay that back to you. So you're talking about hunting patches, open ag land and stuff in your glassing. So first of all, like, do you see, uh, you know, pressure's big. You already, you already brought that up, you know, the first five days, it's the, the lowest point in pressure. But what about like crop rotation in that situation? Do you see, I'm assuming it's a mix of corn and soybeans. So standing corn, I would think be a good security cover, but I'm sure that rotates. So how does that affect it? And then also, are, do you use mostly cell cameras in those situations just to uh, fine tune that, that uh, very methodical choice of stand location or are you able to get in fence rows and stuff where you can get in and out and pull a card and you don't have to worry about that um so to answer your first question as far as crop rotation uh in my general area where i'm at and what i hunt i have better years what i mean by better years i kill bucks on on bean years like mm. I know that sounds really weird because in a high pressured state, a lot of guys are like, well, you need security cover with corn, not displaying that at all. Like, yes, very much. I agree with that, but I've killed three-year-olds, 
you know, with bucks like Pope and Young Deer on beans more times than I've killed them on corn. Um, so crop rotation, I would say the only thing that I really that I like kind of hang my hat on hat at is like we're coming into a year that uh, a lot of the a lot of the crop around uh, a location I hunt is wheat and they took the straw off and now they haven't put a cover crop in it yet. So I don't know how that's really going to play yet because I haven't had this particular field has not been that. So I don't really know how that's really going to shake out. Um, but crop rotation, I, I mean, I, I do keep a, a finger on the pulse of it and I really try to figure it out every year, but really I'm more of an adaptive hunter. Like I don't look at it. And it's like, Oh man, this is beans this year. Not going to be very good. Or it's corn. Like, I really don't know. Like, I really don't look that far into it because I'm more of an adaptive hunter. I, I'm more of like whatever the cards are dealt when season comes, I adapt to that. And I, it usually works out for me. Um, but with that being said, you know, picking out locations with, with camera based stuff, you know, I use a, a, a variety of cell cameras and, um, SD card cameras. I, I'm like, I love S I love, I love both. I love cell cameras because you get that instant gratification. Like I get it, you know, um, I do use, like I have, uh, a couple woodlots, one that's one acre. I've got another woodlot that's about five acres and I got another woodlot that's about eight acres. And I got another one that's like six acres. I like putting cell cams in those. Um, what I'll do is I'll build a scrape. If there's not already a, a scrape there, I will build a scrape. I'll put a cell cam on that. And that's how I get that historical data in that, you know, and, and I try to like patch that together, um, for years to come. Now, I like the cell cams more in the small areas because I like to know if I'm bumping deer out of there or not, because there is, there's areas I get in there and that might be their bedroom. If I'm, if I'm going in there and I know there's deer in there already, I'm not going to go in there. Like, uh, you can call it cheating. You can call it whatever you want, but I, I'm not all about bumping deer to the neighbors. Like I, I don't know. That's just where I'm at with this. So you can't afford um, to. No, you really can't. Not, not when, not when I'm trying to, to get after the top 10% of the bucks that I have to hunt. And that's usually a three or four year old. That's like right around that 130 inch mark, you know? So, um, you bump that deer once you probably won't see him again, you know? Uh, so that's kind of how I navigate the, the camera locations, but really, I don't really hunt cameras. Uh, I, I talked to this, to my good buddy, David, that co-hosts the podcast with me. Like we both run a lot of cameras, but I don't ever find myself like getting dad on a camera, then going in there and, and I've never killed a deer where I got a picture of him or a deer in there, went in there and, and killed. Um, not saying it won't happen. I mean, cause if I do get that dad, I would definitely, you know, try it. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I would say I use, uh, you know, I, I think I have like 50, 50 right down the middle. I've got X amount of SD cards and cell cam. I'm not gonna lie to you. I am cheap. So cell cams are getting to the point where I think I have like seven of them right now. And like, it's like 60, 70 bucks a month. And I'm like, what am I doing? And that's not even, that's not even, you know, counting the batteries that you have to put in them. And you're oh, well over a hundred bucks a month, a camera. And I'm like, boy, oh boy, like I'm cheap as they come. And my wife gets the bill and she's like, what's, what is all this like charge for like these, like these cell plants. And I'm like, yeah, those are my drug phones, you know, <laughs> basically. We'll call so. it being resourceful. We won't call it being cheap. But, I mean, I, I can relate to that. I'm, I was, I'm, on, I'm on the fence right now of do I expand that cell camera amount that I have just because uh, there's a couple properties that are farther away that I would like to have a little bit more recent information for making that decision, yeah. again, for being methodical. But the other thing, too, is I got a couple areas that are new to me that I'm actually not really focusing on whitetails. I'm actually focusing on trying to kill a bear with my bow. And, uh, you know, I've learned, too, with, with following bear is the minute that the food source changes, there's a good chance that they moved off. And it's not like a whitetail where it might be within a one- to three-mile radius. It could be within a, a, a home range of 20 square miles for, for a male. So, you know, trying to use that, and I'm, I'm on that fence of – you know, where does the line at with that? And that's that's probably different for everybody. Um, going back to 
the crop rotation. So you, you said you're, you're very adaptive. Um, I don't hunt a lot of ag land or large ag land. And I was wondering, do you see, so those woodlots you hunt, does the crop rotation not necessarily affect where bedding is? Is the bedding going to stay pretty consistent given that the pressure's remaining low? Is that going to stay pretty consistent with the cover available and the crop rotation doesn't necessarily affect that then? Yeah, it, it really, in the, in the ag that I hunt, it, it really doesn't, I mean, I'm not saying that like and when you have standing corn ears that the deer are not going to bed more in there. I, I really, I couldn't tell you that, but um, there's a lot of drainages uh, mm. in, in fields and, and secluded fields. Those bedding areas don't change. Like they are, they are there for a reason. They get a thermal pull. They get their, their, they don't get much pressure unless it's a farmer checking a field. They're doing something with the field. That's where I see these drainages and terraces and stuff like that. Like that's where I see the bucks bedding a lot in the summer, a lot in the summer into early October. And then because their bodies are going to change a little bit, they're getting up, they're starting to do their, their rotations and like, you know, three day to four day windows. They're doing their, you know, checking what areas are hot, where the does are at. So it kind of pushes them out. Now in the fall, they're bedding to me, is very much stays the same as well just because where i'm hunting there's not a ton of different places to bed so when they can find the good areas the good the good thick areas the ones that they know that they can be safe in and they might get bumped out of an area and they know it worked they're gonna keep coming back to that spot normally um but yeah like i you know the corn years yeah they're probably holding a little more deer than it would be if it's you know some other crop but uh, i really don't see the bedding changing drastically you know due to the crop rotation and that would make sense to me and the only reason i say that is because while i don't hunt a lot of ag land um, i'm a i'm a row crop agronomist i work with a lot of farmers in eastern pennsylvania and you know that time of year august september i still walk crop fields and cornfields and i'm I'm mostly looking for any kind of pests diseases things like that just to kind of keep growers aware of what kind of yield potentials out there what they should expect when combines go through the field and when you walk fields in some of those places that have good deer densities you'll notice that the first you know 12 to 18 rows man you've got a lot of deer pressure and I'll, I'll see stuff knocked down you'll find pockets of bedding especially when you get into those hard corners where maybe some of the corn got ran down or you know the ground's a little bit rougher there and we don't get that canopy so then you get like a grassy weedy patch there and it just creates another structure of habitat but when you get into those large blocks of fields you get out in the middle of it man it's kind of void of deer of, of deer use mm-hmm. you know they're kind of cutting those corners cutting those edges so i can believe that it might expand bedding a little bit but i've never looked at a cornfield that was let's just say 20 30 acres and thought oh man it's probably polluted you know in a, in a grid style pattern across that uh so yeah that's that's interesting from from that perspective and the other take too is I have it, and it is anything thick, and whether it's a thick edge, whether it's a cedar swamp, whether it's corn. To me, deer want to be two bounds and out. They want to be two bounds away from from being able to go wherever they need to go. Um, that I find a lot of bedding, like you said, in the cornfields. I only find like if I find a bed or a, a deer bedding 50, more than fifteen rows deep is very very like it's kind of an anomaly i i find deer on the edges okay and even like in the timber you know we have some cedar swamps on another farm that we have and the deer don't really push in deep in the cedar swamp because they want to be two bounds and out in my opinion that's what i call it is like they want to be bound out you know one two into the open timber or into like a little more open area where they can navigate and they can get they don't really want to be you know diving everywhere where it's going to be hard for them to get out of there i think i think when you get a deer they they actually feel claustrophobic i think they need to know that they have a little open area that once they hit it they can go whatever direction they want and they you know can get away from danger so um that has been my one of the most consistent things that i've seen whether it's a clear cut um you know it's new growth or standing corn and or you know cedar swamp or anything like that 
you know, they're usually not that deep in there. It's usually on the edges. Yeah, I can echo that too. We were just talking about that this morning uh, with some of the guys that I hunt with. Uh, a couple of the places that we hunt in big, monotonous, wooded timber around chop-offs in PA, um, we don't go into the middle of a chop-off and find tons of sign. The only time you do is if there's a logging road right through the heart of it, and then you'll get off of those edges. But, you know, there, there's there's one area in particular that I'm trying to fine-tune and figure out how I want to hunt it with the bow, but it, there's this there's this perfect knob that's kind of, it kind of goes into a north-facing like north to northwest facing and uh, a cut starts right there and it's kind of perfect because when the afternoon sun kind of hits that side hill and the, the thermal starts to change I mean they've got right at the edge of bedding and stuff uh, right, right at the edge of the thick cover and the open timber plus you got that terrain and the winds like it's exactly what you just described there like two bounds and they can be in the thick cover or two bounds and they can be out and uh, and wrap around this ridge to to you know, escape whatever they need. We've seen that a lot. But hey, man, some of them, some of them, Bucky got behind there. Some of those are, uh, some of those are some Michigan deer. Am I not mistaken? Um, actually, those ones are not Michigan deer. <laughs> okay, I actually thought that the one uh, I remember you talking about, I thought it was a Michigan deer, but I'm mistaken. Um, that is Missouri deer. That is a Kansas deer. That is Ohio, and that's Iowa right mm-hmm. there. I do have more along. It's hard for me to move my computer. I've got, I got more over this way, um, and then I actually have uh, four more at the taxidermist that I not have back yet, and I got a couple over here as well. Um, I do have one Michigan deer here uh, just off camera. He's uh, probably a two-year-old. I shot him October first in 2016. Um, he gross scored at 120 inches, and that was a deer that. Uh, bed to food pattern that uh i caught him on destination food just off of his bed and he actually tailwinded into me into an area where i was able to get a shot on him um and that was that was one of the deer that i was like you know really started noticing bucks tailwinding into uh into like destination food sources wondering why they were doing that so i did a whole bunch of like diving into guys that are a lot better hunters than me and the i respect and like try to figure out um what the general consensus on that was that deer was very comfortable in that state and it was october 1st we didn't have a lot of pressure i caught him the first night um went in for that deer and uh i knew he was in that area just from glass and i have footage of that deer in the velvet um that summer and i knew like that that deer was that deer was a product of like glassing uh and and just getting a really good fine tune of what the area is holding and where he might be betting and where the food was. And, um, I set up and he come out of nowhere and a funny story on him, my neighbor, him and I were texting back and forth. My neighbor was hunting probably 250 yards from, from me on his property. And, uh, he walked right underneath him right then, uh, that night. And he's like, Hey, he's like, that buck was just underneath me. and I couldn't get a shot at him. And I'm like, what direction was he going? You know? And he's like, Oh, he's, I think he's heading East. And I'm straight west of him. I know him and I knew where each other were hunting. And um, uh, next thing I know, I mean, it was like a half hour later. I look over, I hear a twig snap, and he's coming right underneath me. And what that deer did is he did took a big loop behind around him and behind him, and then came right underneath me. To, and I was right off destination food, and I stuck him at like 18 yards. It was pretty neat. That is pretty slick. So I mean, again, Michigan. When I think about you know, people always talk about the high pressure states and for whatever reason, you know, I know Pennsylvania's, you know, got a ton of deer hunters. Michigan's always the next state that comes in my mind. Right. And whatever age class that deer was, I, you know, I was wondering too, when you were talking about that, when have you noticed, like, so you, you talk about deer kind of jay hooking or, or making a, a semicircle to kind of check that. Have you noticed that there's a certain point in an age class of deer where you notice that more because like i don't see that in year and a half olds and there's times that i've hunted that i don't know if i necessarily see it in a two-year-old sometimes you do sometimes you don't i mean do you see any kind of trend with that because i mean you're always going to be hunting for the better age class deer anyway so you're going to be planning for that i'm just kind of curious observationally how that how you view that so the only thing i can kind of go off is um is trail cam data that I have 
that I've gathered the last couple years. And I've actually got a camera, a cell cam on a buck bed right now uh, at my family farm. That is a, it's a, it's a right off a point. It's a bed that I found in the spring. It's overlooking our deer camp and it's overlooking our, our cabin where, you know, it's only 250 yards from the cabin. So um, I've been really trying to figure out how uh, a buck is J hooking into this bed, like how big the J hook is or how far they're, how, how they're using the train to get up there. And honestly, what I can tell you is I've had all different age classes, whether it be a year and a half, two and a half, three and a half. I, I don't think I've probably had a four and a half uh, in there yet, but um, every one of them is doing the same thing. Mm. They're doing, yeah. there, there is no different anomalies. And, and what they're using is they're using a spine that comes up to the bed. The biggest thing that changes is the wind. So they're only going to bet on this. That's the only consistent variable here is they only bet on this thing. And whether it's a Southwest or a, or a straight West wind, that's the only way there will be a deer in this bet. And so the wind is very, very uh, specific, but even year and a half olds that are spikes, you know, and, or, you know, 18 months old or however, whatever you want to call it. They'll come up this ridge and they'll come right into the bed and they're J hooking down below. I don't know where their J hook, how far their J hook is, but from where the ridge starts, the spine starts to come up to the bed. It's about 80 yards. And I don't know if it's like an 80 yard J hook where they get at the head of that ditch or that, or that spine, I mean, and walk the whole spine up to the bed. Or if they're coming in at 15 yards or at 20 yards, I'm still trying to figure that out. J hooking is so difficult. It is. It could be 300 yards that they're J hooking into it. I, I don't think anybody really could tell you. Um, but the hardened hardened facts that I have is what I've observed on camera data over buck beds is that every age class from one to three that I've seen will do the same thing, and it's all wind specific. As you're speaking about this, I'm thinking about the buck I killed last year. So I shot him, I think it was the second or third week of October, on a food plot. Now, opening night, I was in another location that was probably about 400 yards over on on actually another food plot. And I I chose it specifically for the wind direction. I could get in, I could get out. The wind was was kind of in my favor. And opening night, I actually saw this buck. He came in uh, 40 yards, but it was right towards the end of legal shooting light it was really really rainy 40 yards is a comfortable shot for me but under those situations and under the first night plus i didn't really know the deer at first i he came in i was like man that looks like a mature buck and then after that hunt i went through pictures of like oh yeah i should have shot that deer but anyway thinking about that the wind was kind of like an east southeast and where he came into that section was on basically the northwest end so he kind of came in and I was just on an on a just off wind kind of a crosswind so like he could come into that field and feel safe but he never picked my wind up and I actually got out of that that stand without him ever knowing I left when it got dark and then fast forward two weeks later on another location it was an opposite when it was a it was a west wind and I I think what happens sometimes too so there was it was a crosswind how he entered the field he kind of entered the top end of the field and the wind would be coming you know straight in my face and he can check, you know, that west end when he comes into the field. But I feel like over time, sometimes they'll let the guard up and they'll slip. Even though it's a cross when he kind of comes in, it wasn't necessarily like it was just off for me. It was almost due in my face. But I felt like the way he entered that field, he probably felt confident enough because he'd done it so many times. And I think that was the first time anybody sat in that location and I was able to kill him. But um just unique observations and it's probably one of those things that when i'm not hunting close to food it is if it's big monotonous timber i think it's really hard to determine how how close is too close when it comes to that location they want to go i mean i think about it in big woods like goodness gracious you could you could throw a dart sometimes i feel like and you maybe you're in the game maybe you're too far yep exactly yeah and that big timber it's man it's it's so so crazy to and it's so hard to figure out you know where that j hook is that's why a lot of guys won't hunt beds in the morning it is it is it happens less than a percent of a percent like it it it, it doesn't it it doesn't work way more times than it works you know what i mean but if it works once 
out of a thousand, well, it's kind of like musky fishing. It's a fish of a thousand casts, right? That's what they call it, something like that. Bed hunting should be that same way. <laughs> and that makes sense, too. I haven't done a lot of bed hunting just because a lot of the, the hunting that I've done from, from a bow hunting perspective has been private land. And I just feel like you were talking earlier about I, I can't afford to bump deer. So if I hunt too close to bed and bump deer in a situation, I'm confined to that border. And, man, that really kills me. If I, if I mess that up. So I'm kind of more cautious and kind of strike when the iron's hot. If I can find someone that's going to let, let his guard up on a, on a food source yep. that I can get in and get out. But I mean, I get when people talk about being aggressive and hunting bedding, when it comes to not being confined to a border and you have competition with other hunters, it makes so much sense. And that's one avenue of deer hunting that I, there's part of me that feels like it's not my style. I don't necessarily need to learn it. But at the same time, I look at it and say, if I could figure out a little bit more of how to hunt deer like that. I just think it would help me understand terrain, wind, and some of those features better just to make me a better deer hunter, even if I'm not going to use that tactic on some of the private land pieces of, of land that I hunt. It still might give me better perspective of why a deer is using that area, bedding in that specific area on that property. Yep. Yep. For sure. Yeah. That, uh, that makes total sense. And that's what I do too. And, you know, especially on a, on a piece of, even if it's private, like, you know, the private, uh, my family farm, like I said, I've got like 10 or 11 other guys that hunt 220 acres. So, um, it's very hard to figure out like a deer's pattern. Like I get a lot of people ask me, it's like, you know, do you see a lot of, uh, the bucks doing the same things every year, using the same beds, using the same rut funnels, using the same patterns. And it's like, man, I'm not gonna lie to you. I don't because mm -hmm. it changes so much. You know, in Michigan, the, the age class is so, so like if we get a four year old around here, it's very, very like it's an anomaly. You know, we're hunting two and three year olds is what we're doing. And the turnover is like there's a lot of times we don't see the same deer year after year. So those deer are, have either been pushed out of an area or they've been killed. And then, you know, to get the pressure you know, the pressure changes every year too. So I think the deer movement sh shifts with that pressure. So it's trying to find those little pockets. I feel like going into my family farm every year, I, I got to figure out it's a clean slate. Forget about what happened last year in a way. You got to figure this out again this year. It's like that adaptive model I told you about. Mm -hmm. Like things are changing so much as far as just the pressure, the kill off, uh, you know, whatever it might be, the change in timber, the change in terrain possibly. Like, it's just so different. It's like clean slate every year, and you got to figure it out on the fly. When you can keep certain variables constant, I feel like you can see year-to-year -year trends. And certain variables, mm -hmm. the big one is pressure. I mean, if the pressure drastically changes over time, I feel, you know, somebody saying, well, do you see the same use of a bed, the same use of a rut funnel, the same use of a feeding area? I think pressure is going to have one of the biggest impacts on how that gets used. Now, that said, when pressure can stay constant and favorably low in my favor, um, I notice trends like you, you talked about patterns and seasonal winds like the, the buck i killed in 2020 it was a it was a narrow window he did the same thing the year i killed him that he did the year before and that was what i used to kind of take that information capitalize so it's like new guys that's, that are starting out like that's such a hard question to answer it yes but there's so many caveats and it's it's there's no hard and fast rule right yeah so i'm curious like hunting michigan pressured state you hunted a lot, but you talked about, you know, showed me some of them bucks in all those different states that you killed behind your wall there. Is Michigan still home and I don't want to miss Michigan bow hunting? Or do you get to some sometimes to the point where you've seen those other locations and go, man, I could probably, uh, I could probably nix hunting Michigan for a year and it wouldn't bug me. Uh, no, Michigan is still home. It very much, I get fired up every year to hunt Michigan to chase, uh, you know, a three-year-old, like I get fired up, man. And it's because like a little bit of it has to do with convenience because it's right here. Like I can hunt a lot of my farms within 20 minutes of me. Um, and I can do it for, like I said earlier in the podcast, I'm cheap. I can do, you know, it's their permission farms or I do have, you know, a family lease um, that I pay for, you know, but like, you know, but it's where I cut my teeth. Like my family farm, I've been hunting my whole life. Like my, 
my dad's hunted since the late seventies. Like that is like, there's so much memory there, you know, and it, it comes with its own challenges. Like I said, there's 200, 200, 220 acres and, and like 11 guys hunt it. So it's like, you know, the last deer, that deer, I just told you the story on, I killed on October 1st. He's the last deer I killed up there. You know, I was still on 16, like, but I haven't hunted up there as much in the last couple of years. Cause I've always been traveling or something like that, but it's a goal of mine to now like start consistently killing bucks in that big wood setting. It's all big timber, mm. um, around a lot of pressure. So there's still challenges here. You know, I, 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 I hope I never like get to the point of like, we're killing a three-year-old 120 inch deer is old. Like I do not want to get to that, but like, because still those deer get me fired up. I mean, the deer that my first buck I killed last year was like 111 inch, probably a two-year-old. I haven't got his age back yet, but, um, and man, I, I, I jumped out of my, my, my tree, you know, after I shot that deer and it's like, I just, the fire still burns deep in there, but also I know that like going to an Iowa or going to a Kansas this year, like I'm putting a lot of eggs in that basket because for me, it's two different forms of hunting. When I travel to hunt, I know my family's taken care of. I know that they know I'm, you know, I'm not a phone call away from like, they'll figure it out. But when I'm home, it's like, every time I go to the tree, it's like, I need to be home. I need to help get my daughter to bed. I need help with dinner like there's always that thought so like hunting out of state for me is very much a little more relaxed like we're here we're here to do a job let's have a lot of fun doing it and uh let's see what we can come out of the woods with kind of thing i can relate to that so michigan you know you talked about family farm cutting your teeth on some properties that you had with family and then some other pieces throughout your hunting journey hunting michigan was there any specific deer or hunting experiences that really clicked with you that either just made the blood boil more for hunting Michigan or maybe just made you feel a little bit more confident in your whitetail hunting game? Man, confident uh, or memory. So, um, boy, I got a lot of memories. One that, like, really burns deep is I was eight years old. I still remember this. I can take you to the tree we were sitting in. My dad took me bow hunting, um, put a stand up next to him. And uh, it was the first time I've ever been like hunting with him. I didn't have a bow. I, I was just there observing, you know. Um, uh, we were sitting in a pine tree. And uh, I remember he took me for an evening hunt and we saw a fox. It was the first fox I've ever seen. Run right underneath the tree. Uh, a couple does came by a little buck grunting and I'm like, holy crap, like this is like, I was hooked right then, but he's like, well, let's go hunting in the morning. So we were going to go back, you know, very much back then it was like a bait hunter. Um, uh, you hunt one tree stand and that's, that's just your spot. Um, so he's like, let's go back in the morning. And he, he taught me how to use the grunter at home that night and everything like that. And it was a night and hail. I think it was a night and hail grunter. It was a black tube. He might still have it actually. And, um, we get up in the tree colder than crap, okay? And I remember, like, the ground, just like a white frost on it. It almost looked like there was a blanket of snow on the ground. It was so frosty. And it was dead calm. I mean, dead calm. And uh, I'm sitting up there. He strapped me in because there was no safety harnesses back then. He took the seatbelt out of his truck. Uh, the middle, it was a it was a bench seat. He took the, the middle seat uh, seatbelt out of his truck. And then he just wrapped around the tree and wrapped me to it and just cinched me right down to the tree. And my legs were dangling right next to his, like his shoulder. And he goes, so he told me, he's like, every time I tap you in the, in the foot, I want you to grunt. I'm like, okay. So he tapped me and I grunt and tapped me again. I grunt. And it wasn't, I don't, I swear it wasn't too much longer after that. All you hear is, ch, 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 and you can tell it's coming. First time I've ever heard, heard a deer walking. Okay. And it was so amplified, so amplified. And like, I could see him grab his bow and it was like over the shoulder. It was like right in front of him, but kind of to my left. And I'm looking and I remember him pointing like in the direction and all of a sudden the deer stops and then you hear and he stops. And at that point I could pick out where he was and you could just see his feet come up like the bottoms of his feet come up to this pine tree he's on the other side of the pine tree and all of a sudden you just see the branch 
going up and down and he's like doing like a scrape and like and he walks out and it's a nice nine point um probably like a you know 110 inches probably real tall like heavy comes out rare and i watch that deer and he ran i don't know 25 yards 30 yards and fell over and watched him die and oh my gosh man like that was the moment was like this is what i want to do for absolutely ever like that is the moment um so that was a solidifier of like that was the coolest thing i've ever seen uh a deer that gave me confidence i mean man um trying to think that deer that i told you the story about in 16 that deer gave me a lot of confidence just in the fact of of learning bedding areas setting up on a certain area where i thought he was going to be and where he wanted to be and killing him like that was really neat uh two no 2008 um the deer is in the other room biggest deer i ever killed at the time 105 inches i thought i killed mitch rompola's buck uh in uh 2008 I get first trail cam I ever got. Uh, it was a film camera, so you had to go and put the take the film to the one hour film, and I uh, put a camera out and put it on bait, and got it on August 18th. I got a picture of a deer that I was like, oh my gosh, just boom, we're gonna hunt that deer. Like yes, let's go. Um, fast forward to October. Like just not, not, uh, not really getting the results I wanted to get, you know, and, and I was still a stationary hunter at the time, like set, you know, set your stands before season and you hunt, but we had a few more stands and we were baiting, hunting food plots and, uh, but you'd set probably five or six stands and that's what you hunted. You know, it was like the mobile hunting game really wasn't like there was mobile hunting, but it wasn't in the media like it is now. Like you didn't hear much about it unless you were on like a forum or had a DVD or something. So that really wasn't in my realm. And uh, it was uh, October 17th. A buddy and I, I was like, I just had this thing. Or I was like, man, I'm just not seeing the deer I want to see. And uh, I was like, I want to move this stand. And I said, I want to move it down by our cedar swamp. And it was where, I didn't know this at the time, but it was where there was, there was a hard edge. It's where the cedar swamp met an oak ridge. Okay, and I didn't I didn't know like putting it right there was like that where you'd want it for an edge, you know, for a hard edge stand or something like that, or just off bedding. It just felt good. Just looked like a good area to put put a stand, honestly. And uh hung it on the seventeenth, and I said I'll come back tomorrow night and I'm gonna hunt it tomorrow night. I'm gonna let it kind of cool down. My brother in law uh came with me to film me. I put a we I was much into filming at that time. Um and he came back to film me. We got in early. I remember, I mean, in October, we're still, it hasn't been daylight savings time yet. It was like a four-hour sit. I wanted to get in early. He ended up falling asleep. And uh, I'm looking at this cedar swamp, but I'm in the oaks. And uh, it was probably an hour before dark. And all of a sudden, in the cedar swamp, I could hear a twig snap. And I told my brother-in-law, I'm like, there's something, something in there. And uh, next thing you know, here, like, you could see the feet walking underneath the cedar boughs and he comes up and you could see his head in the in the trees and he's just raking this tree and i just see tines and i'm like oh my gosh and at this moment this is the biggest deer i've ever had in front of me like and i you know i grab my bow and i'm like he's right there you know and he gets on him with the camera the deer walks out comes to like eight yards i stop him go to full draw and i shoot him he runs off like 20 yards dead and i'm like oh my gosh, like lit the world on fire. Like, holy crap, big buck down. Like, let's go. Yeah, all on film. Get down, check him. Ends up being the deer. I killed him two months to the day that I got a picture of him. Didn't know it was that deer, but I got a picture of that deer on August 18th. Killed him October 9th, or 18th. And, uh, and I only killed him like a hundred yards from where that camera was, but I didn't really put those two and two things together. You know, like that's, was his haunt. What did he end up doing? Knowing what I know now is and knowing that farm, like he would, we, I think we got in pretty close to his bed, honestly, just by happenstance. And uh, where we killed him was a good transition where he goes up to the food. 
And now knowing what I know now and looking back and asking why that worked, well, I know why it worked. We got in tight to his bed and we got to a point where he was hitting acorns and the acorns just happened to be dropping. And that's where he was quote unquote staging before he would go out to the destination food. And it just, all those things lined. And I look at that now and it's like, okay, I see how that timber lays and how the train lays. And I implement that wherever I go now. And it's worked the same kind of thing has worked a couple other times from that. So that was very much one that I was like, man, I, I got the confidence and that was really cool. And, and the more the more instances you have like that, the better off you are and the more you'll grow as a hunter. Absolutely. Some of the best learning experiences that I've had is for things like that. I want to try this. I want to I'm just just out of curiosity. I want to see, you know, see what I see over here in, in, in my travels and scouting and stuff. And man, sometimes that's your best hunt. It's amazing how that can happen. And what you take from that's like those are aha moments. Um, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, I've had a lot of those aha moments where they got away, but that's part of hunting. <laughs> I've had a lot too, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's that drive though that keeps us coming back for it. Well, man, this has been great. I really appreciate you uh, coming on, taking the time and, uh, and chatting with us. Um, hey, before we go, anything you want to leave us with and, and make sure please, uh, please plug, plug, uh, plug the fall podcast and everything else. Yeah, I appreciate Mitch having me on. And man, I had a lot of fun today. And um, thank you for asking. Uh, I do have my own podcast called The Fall Podcast. You can get it wherever you download your podcast. Uh, check check The Fall Podcast out on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, and we drop new episodes every Tuesday morning on Apple or Spotify or anywhere you get your podcast. But Apple and Spotify are usually the big ones. It's called The Fall Podcast. And search that and you can, you can find it, man. I appreciate it. Again, thank you. It has been a lot of fun. Hey, take care. Good luck this season, and best of luck on that Kansas hunt, man. That sounds like a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Good luck to yourself.